Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Bruno Sarda to the show. Bruno Sarda is a leader in driving a sustainable future with more than a decade of sustainability leadership experience. As the president of CDP North America, he works to grow the organization and increase environmental disclosure and action among companies and local governments, as well as manage the North America team and operations. Previously, he served as chief sustainability officer for NRG, a leading integrated power company, and has also worked at Dell and Charles Schwab. Bruno is a faculty member and senior sustainability scholar at Arizona State University. Bruno, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Bruno, thank you for joining us. Bruno, where are you currently located? I am in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And how's the weather in Princeton? You know, it's actually been quite uh, quite lovely. Uh, not uh, not quite as warm or humid as it is this time of year. So, uh, in these days when we're all kind of, you know, stuck in our in or near our homes, it's been it's been nice to be able to spend some uh, some time outside. So, getting the opportunity to get out and walk a little bit, walk, even uh, ride my bike, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been, and even do a little bit of work in the garden. I don't have really green thumbs, but uh, green thumbs, but uh, I I try. Well, good for you. Good for you. So, Bruno, I like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? <laughs> um, well, let's see. Uh, I, I've spent two weeks, uh, two separate weeks, uh, a few years apart, uh, deep in the Amazon rainforest uh, and uh, uh, somewhat unusual experiences, but uh, uh, very, very formative and uh, very grateful for having had that opportunity. And what did you do while you were down there? You know, it was uh, a very kind of um, low, low tech uh, exploration. It was basically part of bringing some sustainability leaders together to engage in both kind of reflection, leadership development, and better understanding of the kind of the interconnectedness that exists in the uh, rainforest ecosystem, where literally, you know, if you mess with one thing, you mess with everything. So everything exists in service of something else. And it's, it's fascinating to, to, to be able to observe and, and, and learn from that. So two things. First of all, when you said two weeks in the Amazon, interesting, I thought you were going to talk about ayahuasca. So, <laughs> <laughs> And the second thing reminds me of that uh, quote regard, by John Muir regarding the thread, and if you pull on it, everything unravels. So mm -hmm. appreciate you sharing that. Yes, absolutely. So can you give a brief overview of CDP? Sure. Um, so CDP, sometimes uh, known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, that's what it was known for, for many of its years, um, is, uh, is a nonprofit organization actually turning 20 years old um, in 2020. 
and really created with kind of a singular idea to try to con uh, create a systemic link between environmental information and financial information and to do so in order to inform financial decision making to to shift capital in the direction of kind of a more climate safe low carbon uh, future um and so what how we do that is we are basically the global disclosure platform for for business uh, or companies and cities around the world so we we have companies you know in over 100 countries representing over 50% of global market cap uh, doing voluntary relatively detailed disclosures to cdp on climate change uh, water and deforestation and basically both how they're managing their impacts uh, on the environment on those topics, but also how they're managing the, the impacts on their business of things like a changing climate or shifting water availability and um, uh, erosion of, uh, of, of, of forests. So um, I lead the CDP North America. We're based in New York. Uh, we have about 60 people or so. Uh, uh, engaging with four primary stakeholders, uh, corporations, um, uh, investors and the capital markets, investors, banks, uh, hedge funds, etc., cetera, um, policymakers, and uh, what we call C-star or city, states, and regions. So anything smaller than a country. So we don't do any work at the kind of the national government level, but any subnational uh, is where we, uh, we operate. And can you give some examples of the kinds of disclosures? Yeah, so this is, it's very kind of deep and narrow. So for example, on the climate change disclosure, which is by far our, uh, if you will, our flagship product, if you can call it that, it's, um, you know, companies are asked to, to disclose in great detail uh, what they measure, what they manage, how they manage it, um, what goals they have, what mitigation strategies they have, how they're establishing governance. So a typical CDP disclosure could be, you know, potentially dozens of pages with, you know, both lots of numbers and lots of words, uh, but it is by far the most comprehensive and frankly, the, really the only uh, data set of its kind in the world that uh, takes inventory, if you will, of what is business doing uh, relative to climate change, both again, uh, what is business doing to contribute less to the problem of climate change and what is business doing to prepare for the impacts of climate change on business and its operations. Um, so this could mean, you know, anything from, um, you know, depending again, companies maybe in the power sector, it's about how they're decarbonizing their power generation and the food sector. It's about how they're, um, you know, looking at land use models uh, as well as, you know, where they look to potentially grow um, their crops now and in the future, as well as their use of things like fresh water. Or so there's a wide range of things, but this informs a very rich data set that then is used by financial institutions all over the world to either kind of assess portfolio level risk, as well as potentially look for, um, you know, what they call alpha or basically potential uh, returns because we score all of those disclosures to CDP and the top 2% or so every year get what our A rating. So what we call our A-list. And now for seven straight years, A-listed companies have outperformed um, the broader stock market by an average of 5.5% a year for seven straight years. So there's a clear correlation between, uh, you know, if you will, kind of leadership in the environmental space, or at least in this case, in the climate space, and financial returns in the stock market. So our, uh, you know, investors are very interested in trying to understand through the data what, you know, what that looks like, and that are there any predictive natures to that? So we we exist at the interface of 
business and finance primarily, and then also city and finance. Um, all of these companies around the world that disclose to CDP do so on a voluntary basis. There's not a single jurisdiction in the world anywhere that requires this level of disclosure by law or by regulation. So all of this is voluntary based on basically interest from the financial markets and from civil society to get this level of transparency from uh, from companies and from cities. So you started by saying that um, the reports can be several pages long. Do you provide templates for the companies? Yeah, so the CDP experience uh, at its basis is a questionnaire. So every year... Um, we publish a uh, questionnaire and it's all you know uh, made available to the public um, on our website. Anybody can go see what the questionnaire is. They can go see actually what most companies' responses then every year. Uh, you know, if you wanted to know what CDP, uh, what Apple or Google disclosed to CDP last year, you could go download that today. So it's yes, it is a standardized questionnaire. So that by the time they responded to it, then it allows us to create a standardized data set. Uh, with, you know, after some data cleansing and whatnot, uh, can then feed into all kinds of uh, data management systems. And who at these companies usually takes the time to do these questionnaires? It What's depends. The role? It depends. Uh, often um, often the, 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 the people who actually, if you will, kind of answer the questions in the questionnaire can be in the, sometimes in the sustainability team, sometimes in the, uh, uh, corporate affairs and environmental health and safety, uh, even sometimes in, in legal. Uh, but the, you know, the responses have to come from across the company. So now, you know, you have to um, get responses that come out of your finance department, out of your risk department, out of your board and your, uh, you know, your corporate secretary, your C-suite, um, uh, your strategy. Uh, so it's, it's both kind of rear looking and forward looking. So it engages, uh, you know, most parts of an organization, but if you will, the mechanics of collecting that information often um, flows back to to the corporate sustainability team. And you mentioned markets earlier. You know, I heard, I read Larry Fink pass some comments earlier this week or late last week regarding some of the companies that BlackRock is looking at, and you know how these companies aren't perhaps living up to some of the standards that BlackRock's looking at. Who are the major consumers of your reports? Uh, so we do both reports and again, data sets. So, you know, a company like BlackRock and all the large asset managers use, um, and consume our data, all the big kind of financial data or FinTech companies, you know, the Bloomberg's, the S and P, the Moody's, you know, the credit ratings, um, uh, a lot of the financial media, um, as well. Uh, and then, you know, a, a whole bunch of others. So whether it's for it's for uh, analysis uh, to combine with other data sets to create bespoke data products for the insurance industry, uh, certainly all environmental NGOs uh, in some way or another rely on CDP data. Again, we're really the only organization that collects the information we collect. So so nobody really has what we have. And so, but, you know, we're a nonprofit. That's why we exist is to <laughs> make that available and to promote its use. Um, a lot of universities also use our data set to inform some of their research. Um, we are 501c3. We don't do any lobbying. We don't do 
um, you know, any any sort of trying to influence policymaking, but we inform policymakers. You know, we we will you know present data and or even testify to Congress. We were asked twice to testify to the Congress, uh, the House Select Committee on Climate Change. You know, that just published its report a couple of weeks ago. We were quoted in that. Um, we are often asked to engage with individual legislators' offices to help them understand either impacts on their state or or the businesses in their state. Uh, so we again we work with policymakers not in a in a policy influencing role, but really in a in a kind of data sharing and education role. Now the companies that are submitting these reports voluntarily, obviously, you know, they invest resources to fill out the questionnaire. So they have a strong belief in sustainability and want to show that you know they're doing the right thing. I've heard you in the past draw parallels between the internet and you know the sustainability movement. Can you share some of that with the audience? Yeah, you know, uh, for me there was, and that was kind of my own pivot in my career. You know, I spent the first uh, uh, fifteen years or so of my career um, kind of at that bleeding edge of digital disruption. You know, in, in the mid-90s, I joined actually uh, Charles Schwab in the financial space, you know, at a time when, you know, we were trying to figure out, or the company was trying to figure out what the internet was going to do to business and whether it was really, you know, meaningful. I mean, at the time, you know, hardly anybody had a computer on their desk at the office. Hardly anybody had a computer in their house. Nobody really had meaningful access to the internet at home um, or at work. Um, and so these were early days. And of course, you know, we all know how that unfolded and the internet changed everything about everything. Uh, and both, you know, about how we communicate with each other in society, how we do our work. Um, it transformed, uh, anything from, you know, kind of logistics, supply chains, et cetera. And, um, I think when we look back and the companies that, that, you know, Schwab was actually a good example that, you know, saw it kind of as a big disruptor but saw this more as a you know as an opportunity to try to wield that disruption better than its competitors and emerged really as kind of the the you know one of the leaders in the kind of transition to online brokerage um and you know we saw plenty of companies and you know most notoriously in the music and, and movie business you know who were deeply entrenched in trying to protect their business model and resisting the digitization of their business model and really kind of re- you know, refusing this reality that was in front of them, that that was just not a fight they were going to win. And, you know, I mean, the early days of things like Napster and others, you know, and now, of course, the biggest music and movie companies are things like, you know, Apple and Amazon and Netflix, you know, and not the people who were leading in that business before. Um, And so I think sustainability for me is very similar. It's this kind of, there's this big societal force for change that is coming at us, this big kind of cloud that's uh, heading or has been heading now for a while in the way of business. And, you know, some uh, businesses, you know, release resisted the idea of change saying, you know, our, our job is to try to push that cloud away as opposed to, you know, recognizing this cloud is coming. It's going to change everything about everything. And it's really going to force us to kind of re reinvent how we do what we do. Um, you know, I think what, um, Sometimes it's called the fourth industrial revolution or, or things like that, uh, you know, or the, the ushering in of the low carbon economy is, is you know, perceived to potentially have as much of a societal impact on, on people, but also business as the Internet did. Um, so I think we're, we're in the middle of that. So if you had the ear of some 
organizations or leaders that were on the fence, what would you say to them to convince them to go the route of Netflix and not Blockbuster? You know, for sure, partly, partly is I would say, again, don't, don't listen to what you want to hear, but rather, you know, kind of open yourself to what you're seeing um, that the risks of inaction are great and there's plenty of empirical data to, to show that. But the good news is, is that the, um, the benefits or the opportunities associated with the transition are tremendous. Uh, and, and again, this, uh, this opportunity, especially, you know, in, in this country where sometimes things like climate denialism and, and some of these things tend to be associated with a particular, you know, political movement or ideology. Um, I think there's plenty to like for anybody here that this is the opportunity for, you know, the United States to really cement a whole new era of innovation in clean tech and renewable energy in low carbon transportation, in all kinds of new systems that can be exported and, uh, uh, you know, both kind of improve the quality and the, and the resiliency and the security of the U.S. infrastructure, but also, um, you know, create a, a commercial advantage and competitive advantage with other nations. The other thing I'd say to them is, is again, this isn't a government solution. I mean, look around, you know, all the innovation, all of this groundswell is being driven by business. There's tre tremendously exciting things happening all around. And if all the captains of industry, maybe except in the coal and oil and gas sector, although there are some there, uh, but, you know, almost every other sector now is rapidly embracing this transition. Um, again, look around and see, you know, is there something there that you're not looking at with an objective set of eyes? Well, I hope they listen to you. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. The crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. And you mentioned your beginnings with Schwab and, you know, where you started at. But, you know, what's your why? What's driven you to stay in this field of sustainability all these years to the point, you know, where you've been teaching it too at um, ASU, I believe, for many years mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think my why, I mean, for sure, you know, as a if you will, as a, as a global citizen, you know, I, I grew up, um, was born and raised in France. You know, I immigrated to the U.S. Um, in my late teens. Uh, I've been fortunate to to travel, uh, you know, in various parts of the world. Um, you know, I think that the, the principles around sustainability, whether you look at the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals or other frameworks, are really about uh, you know, trying to 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 bring humanity together as opposed to to not, and so and I'm very committed to that. I, you know, I uh, that is a very strong part of my why of you know finding ways for us to really find all that unites us as opposed to all that divides us. Um, and uh, second, I think is I've been fortunate again to to spend most of my career at this interesting time of transitions, you know, and and even transformations. And, and recognizing the power that these transitions and transformations can can yield, both in terms of these inflection points in um, in in kind of historical trends. You know, I think uh, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you know, the the arc of history uh, bends uh, slowly, but in the direction of justice. And this idea of okay, can we help? bend the trends, you know, a little bit faster than history would on, on its own. Um, and so that's part of my why is I think, you know, this idea of uh, looking at these disruptions, whether it's digital disruption, whether it's this low carbon disruption, not as a threat, but as an opportunity. 
And uh, my work with corporations has been to help companies, again, see that and act on it. And then same with my teaching is to help, um, you know, people who are interested in advancing their careers in this direction to, to maybe share some of the things that I've been fortunate to learn along the way. So where does your grounding in justice come from? Um, you know, I'd have to, I think, give credit to my upbringing. I was fortunate, again, to, to, to be raised in, a, in kind of a multinational, multicultural environment. My, again, French by birth, but my, my grandparents, uh, actually, uh, my, my grandfather, who uh, fought in, in World War II uh, for the French, but then, um, you know, had been prisoner of the Nazis for a while. He escaped. He finished the war under American command after World War II, was actually asked to go to Japan and be part of the reconstruction there and as part of the Marshall Plan. And so actually my mom grew up kind of mostly in Japan uh, for uh, most of her, you know, youth. And uh, and uh, I don't know, just this idea of, you know, we're, again, we're no, no matter what, you know, these points in time in the history books might tell us, you know, again, most people around the world want the same things for themselves, for their kids. And, uh, and I think we can see every day, including recently with some of, you know, again, some of the tragic events that we've seen with George Floyd and others that, that this, this promise of a, of a life, um, uh, you know, uh, that is, that is, uh, can be fulfilled, you know, this idea of the pursuit of happiness, equality, uh, liberty, uh, is not equally experienced by everybody in the world. And I think, you know, it is everybody's work to, um, to ensure that that happens. And, you know, in my own journey, recognizing, you know, as a, basically, you know, as a Caucasian, uh, male, straight, you know, those kinds of things, recognizing how many things I've been blind to in my upbringing that I just didn't experience the kind of prejudice, the kind of suffering that uh, others might have. And, and that it's, you know, it's part of my job to, uh, to, to educate myself on what I have not personally experienced and do anything I can to help, you know, correct those, uh, those uh, um, over time. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, my own personal view is I feel that people like you and I who've had the pleasure or the privilege of being global citizens, being able to travel, have, you know, since we've traveled, we've seen people from all different walks of life. And I feel like we do have a stronger grounding, especially when it comes to empathy and compassion for people of all kinds, races and colors. What are your thoughts about that? I fully agree. I, uh, you know, when I see some of the, the tension and, and the animosity and the division, that exists in, in the U.S. today. And then I see the statistic that I think, you know, barely 10% of Americans have a passport um, and that most of those who do, you know, it's either to go, you know, 50 miles inland, either into Mexico or Canada um, and not really get to experience the culture of these countries as much as just to experience a little bit of their tourist uh, or, or, you know, gambling facilities or whatever. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it would be tremendous to have a, a, you know, some kind of national priority that, it, you know, let's try to get as many people to travel abroad as possible. You know, I know in the back in the 80s, you know, I think Japan had uh, very much a program where they would subsidize their citizens travel abroad to really get them to experience the rest of the world and come back with new ideas. I think China has been doing that recently. Um uh, uh as well um and i think you know any country that uh, that invests in its people's ability to go learn from others uh not for the purposes of you know <laughs> stealing or whatever but just to literally this is how we understand each other 
and and I've never found uh, anybody who traveled uh, internationally and came back poorer for it. I agree. So you've been on this journey in sustainability for about 20 years or so. What are some of the big lessons or takeaways you've learned on your journey? You know, I think first is, is as much as there are, you know, very real things that matter, you know, so climate science is real and, and, you know, we need to keep, you know, atmospheric uh, concentrations of CO2 below a certain level. We need to keep, you know, the warming of the atmosphere below a certain level, things like, you know, deforestation and, and the rate of deforestation. I mean, there's some very physical, natural boundaries to this world. I mean, after all, you know, we are in, in a physical world and that physical world has physical boundaries, but that beyond that, um, there's so much room for collaboration and innovation and coming together so that it's not about pushing an, ide- an, I- an ideology. It's not about pushing an agenda. It's not about forcing solutions. You know, I'm always reminded, um, I grew up, you know, as I mentioned, French, you know, one of my heroes growing up was Jacques Cousteau, who I thought, you know, was uh, a tremendous in the way he approached his craft, you know, he was passionate about the oceans and, you know, was very troubled by how much the oceans were being plundered and polluted. And he set out to change that. And the way he set out to change that is not by trying to make people change, but by trying to make people want to change. And by, you know, in order to do that, he said, I have to make them fall in love with what I love. So he literally devoted his innovation, you know, in inventing the Aqualung, right? He literally holds the patent on the underwater braiding apparatus that is now basically the stable of any scuba diver. Uh, So how can I go underwater and breathe? Because he wanted to film what's underwater and then invented basically some of the first uh, underwater cameras to be able to do that. So, you know, this fascinating approach to starting with this goal of I want to protect the, the oceans, I need more people to want to do that too, not by force, but by will. Uh, And then I'm going to innovate my way into making that possible. So I think this idea of, you know, it's all about the hows, right? So how do we get to what we want? You know, it's less about pushing some very specific rigid ideas or, or, or goals, but trying to really uh, solidify around a set of principles, around a set of values, around a set of, of shared uh, ideals, uh, because then it becomes easier to disagree about the house. And then, you know, we can just kind of, we can compromise on the house. And, you know, I think of things like, you know, universal healthcare in the US, which has become controversial, but it's like, if we could all agree that what we want is universal healthcare, and then let's talk about how we get to that, as opposed to disagree on whether we want that or not. So I think, you know, that's certainly what I've learned is when you can get to the how conversation, you're 80% of the way there. If you're trying to get to the if conversation, you know, that's often when you run into roadblocks. Um, And then I think what I've learned, frankly, in my own um, leadership journey is I think, again, you kind of point the way and clear the path. So, you know, really try to uh, uh, kind of point the way again without necessarily trying to define in my own ways what the destination is or how fast we should get there or you know what it should look like but rather just you know we need to head in this direction again in this arc i think that uh, mlk jr referred to and then clear the path you know just be this enabler be this champion be this kind of if you will vanguard of you know kind of making it possible reduce the friction 
so that uh, you know, make it easy to say yes for for whether it's for corporate leaders, for boards of directors, for investors to say yes. Okay, like this makes sense. It feels a little bit less risky, a little bit easier, a little bit more attainable. Let's go, you know, test some things, and so just clear, you know, point the way and clear the path. And I found that uh, um, that has uh, served me well. So, what about aha surprise moments? Anything surprised you in your journey? You know, I would say, and you you mentioned earlier in the conversation, our, our uh, you know common friend uh, Park Howell, um, who's been also very much a an inspiration for me and his own transformation in in uh, in his career by really you know understanding and wielding and ultimately you know codifying the power of story and the power of narratives and the power of framing and you know i've always been very comfortable as very much of a kind of a left brain kind of guy with with facts and data and and process and structures and because you know i find it it's um it's it's easier to manage that way but i think some of the aha moments is when i really just trust in this idea of the power of compelling narratives, the power again of really describing these shared ideals or these desired outcomes or this kind of these futures we want um, uh, and how much that can inspire action at a whole new level. You know, kind of like if I describe a beautiful destination, maybe a tropical island and all the reasons why we would want to go there and really make it kind of feel so nice. And then I say, oh, and by the way, in order to get there, we have to like, you know, go to a bunch of airports, take a bunch of crowded planes, take off our shoes a bunch of times, eat bad food, you know, pay for overpriced water. But we're still stuck on the, but we are going to do all those things because we're going to get to this beautiful destination. As opposed to if I said, okay, here's what international travel is going to feel like and not take the time to really create that narrative and that framing around the destination, then the journey would sound a lot less palatable. Uh, so anyway, maybe not a super useful example, but that's, I think for me, that's been my aha is really to take the time to, again, kind of engage the imagination about the, the not just the, the journey, but the destination a little bit, or at least the direction, you know, this pointing the way of why, why do we want to go in that direction? What's better about it? Why is that better for everyone? Um, and then talk about how we get there. So it sounds like you've become quite a beautiful vision painter. Magic, <laughs> magic wand, five years from now, what does the future hold for CDP? What does it look like? Ooh, um, you know, I think uh, there's, there's so many things. I mean, obviously, five years from now, about 2025, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're in a race against the clock here. I mean, a lot of the important milestones we care about at CDP uh, have very important kind of checkpoints at 2030. It's the, you know, it's the target year for the, the attainment of the sustainable development goals. It's the halfway point to the Paris Accord on climate change and needing to have reduced global emissions by 50% by then. And right now, the trajectory is not, is not good. We're not, you know, heading in the right direction. By 2025, we need to have really bent that trajectory so that we're on course for, um, Again, the achievement of the interim milestone for the Paris Accord, we're on course to the achievement of, you know, those 17 sustainable development goals that I really think of as kind of humanity's wish list, you know, about uh, if, if all these things were achieved, you know, 17 goals, about 168 targets or so. Uh, here's my data side coming out, as you can tell, um, <laughs> you know, we 
everybody would be better off in this world uh, uh, and not just people, but nature and, and wildlife. And, uh, and it would be a good place to be. So I think for us, that's, that's our challenge is how do we, how do we keep doing more of what we do? How do we, you know, expand our scope and our pace and, and our reach in ways that allows us to achieve that kind of scale and that kind of trajectory uh, in an accelerated fashion so that by 2025, we feel good about the potential of achieving 2030. Uh, again, it doesn't have to be easy. This stuff is not easy and it doesn't, it's okay that it's hard, but we, you know, we want to give ourselves as many chances as we can. Well, I love the idea of humanity's wish list and staying with that for a moment. Earlier, you shared some advice for leadership and companies regarding becoming a Netflix, not a blockbuster. But if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience as individuals, what would it be? You know, something I've been tapping into lately is, is and again, I'm, you know, also with uh, young, uh, well, less young, you know, college age kids, but uh, um, is, I, I think, you know, telling people and reminding people to believe in yourself, um, even if oftentimes you're made to, 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 to question that, but really believe in yourself, but also believe in others. You know, again, as I look around, even uh, among people who disagree about lots of things and who think those disagreements define them. The fact is, you know, we're, we're, we're all the same. We all want very similar things and, and let's, let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. Let's trust in each other's humanity. Let's try to bring out each other's humanity as opposed to suppress it. You know, we truly are all in this together. Um, you know, some like to say there is no planet B, but it's not just about the planet. You know, it's even, it's not about, you know, national borders. It's not about these kinds of things. It's, uh, um, you know, let's, let's really try to activate the best in everyone, um, that we touch. And if we can do that for each other, I think we'll all be better off. Well, Bruno, I think that's a great place to end it. Believe in yourself. Is there something I should have asked you that I have not? No. I think I think we covered a good amount of ground. Uh, this was fun. Appreciate your time, Bruno, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production